Welcome to episode 54 of the Just Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. This is Andrew Desimone <laughs> here with... Croyler Gracie. Croyler, it's great to have you today. How are you doing? Are you uh, are you sick there? Or, uh, no, the, sick. No, this is that's not sick. That's my professional announcer voice. Oh, is that what that was? <laughs> yeah. That sounds that sounds ill. <laughs> no, I just don't know. You sound like you're making a face as you spoke. I focusing really hard. It was kind of awkward. I thought that would be like really professional if we. Hey, welcome to the show. Wow, it was crazy out there. Ooh, it's snowing. Careful when you're driving, folks. Even though everyone listening. is from around the world and not from this exact spot. <laughs> Guess I couldn't talk like a local radio station. Could you do it? Let's hear your let's hear your broadcasting voice. <laughs> this is my broadcasting <laughs> voice. <laughs> let's hear your impression of a local radio DJ. I don't, I don't do impressions. I'm not good at them. I like to think that you do when you're by yourself. <laughs> at home with me and the dogs. <laughs> you do? Okay, who do you impersonate when you're on your own with the dogs? I don't. I don't. You don't have like a good Donald Trump impression? I don't. I don't do any impressions. Do you do any uh, impressions of famous Brazilians? No, I don't. I don't do impressions. <laughs> you do a you do a pretty good Hickson one, although it's kind of offensive. And I, so I most definitely don't do a Hickson. Sorry, I, I won't try to start a beef with you guys. All right, so we're here, and this is an episode of BJJ Giants. We are doing this episode on Carlson Gracie. Senior, to be exact. This one is going to be on the eldest son of Carlos Gracie. Yep. We did it. Yeah, we've done an episode on Carlos, right? Um, yeah, I know you and, you and I have done an episode. I don't know if it was ever released or not. It, yeah, we did. This one is, is oldest son. What's the just snapshot before we dive in here? What do you think most people think of when they hear Carlson? It doesn't even have to be the right thing. What do you think his image is in the jujitsu world? Um, you know, it's probably like like the old school bad boy look. Mm-hmm. That's probably what comes to mind. My view of him was always, before doing much research, was I knew he was the son of Elio or Carlos. I didn't know. I knew he trained Vitor Belfort because I saw him in his corner, and so I was like, oh yeah, he was a he was a good coach, and that's about all I know. Mm-hmm. There's, I think there's a little bit more to it. Just a little bit. And maybe we could just, just talk about a little bit of that in this episode. Okay. Um, let's rewind and go all the way back to 1932. Okay. We have a little baby Carlos, Carlos crazy. Baby, baby Carlos. Carlson. Yeah. Carlson. I'm going to say Carlos so many times. I know. You've already said it several times. Please correct me when started. I do. <laughs> uh, it's because, you know what, because in my notes... It's for some reason it was Carlos was highlighted, so I'm just gonna scroll down so I can't even see Carlos anymore. All right, uh, but I did see this note. He was not born Carlson Gracie. Nope, he was not. He was born before the, the nomenclature for the family was developed. Yeah, it was Eduardo. Yeah, and so his name changed, and why? Why? Why was the change? Why did um, they feel the need? Carlos and my grandfather believed that certain. They believed that words that power have power. So they believe that if you say a word too many times, or it's been used too many times, it detracts from its power. So, you know, and, and to some extent it's true, right? I mean, if you think about it, like, um, like if somebody calls you dumb too many times, like that, it doesn't affect you as much, right? If, if somebody says they miss you all the time or 
and or or like awesome like aw- right. or cool which right. i say that's all the time right. but yeah it loses, it loses its, its power potency. yeah so the belief system the first belief system and, and i'm not an expert on nomenclature i should be but anytime you bring that up in the family they always assume you're having kids so um oh yeah that's right when we talked about it last time <clears throat> i asked you if you had names chosen and i think you said yes no oh you said you wouldn't say maybe i, I said i said we can't pick names yet that's right, because if you do, then your family right. will assume you're having kids. Right. <clears throat> what do you think? Okay, let's say this. If if I wanted to convert uh, and just really jump in, if I wanted to be a poser for the Gracies and I wanted, I changed my last name to Gracie, mm-hmm. what, do you, what, should, what would you make my Gracie compliant name be? I don't know. I would have to give it some thought. Let's let's hold on. Let's just try to think of one that is that fits within the rules. Um, if uh, I'm gonna just start with a huh sound because I feel like it could be hobby, like Robbie, but just hobby. Sure. Are there any hobbies out there? There's a hobby in, but not a hobby. Do you know if his nickname is Hobby? He doesn't have a nickname. I'm Hobby. There you go. There we go. Hobby Gracie. I wouldn't go that far. What's up, Hobby? <laughs> I mean, what's up, Croyler? Just, just me, Hobby. Yeah, I don't know about that. All right, so, all right, so, so they, yeah. So, sorry, go so, on. So there's a nomenclature where you know the name is supposed to be unique, not used a lot, preferably the first of its kind. Uh, there's a pattern for letters and how they're supposed to be arranged and the Heckler. order of them. There you go. It's just Geklar with the with the R, so right. Heckler. There you go. That works. All right, sorry, go back. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yes, that works. Um, so yeah, so when when they they came up with it, you know, they there's the oops, you know, Carlson's already been born, so they went ahead and, and changed his name. Was is he the oldest of all the grandkids? I believe so. He's okay. the he's. I think he's the oldest of the kids. They're the kids, yeah. Yeah. So right. you know the whole thing with like to go with nomenclature because people listening may think it's weird, but um, if I say Benjamin, it's the first thing that comes to mind. Netanyahu. What? Benjamin Netanyahu. <laughs> is that is that the first thing that comes to mind? Yeah. Not, not Franklin. No, because last time you asked me that, Franklin came to oh, mind. So this gotcha. time you I had to change it up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you say Benjamin, like everybody, you know, the assumption is everybody is always going to be just another Benjamin. They'll never be the Benjamin or the best Benjamin. Benjamin Button. Sure. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. So uh, moving on. So he becomes, yeah, he becomes Carla, Carlson. Carlson. Yes. Uh, now he starts off doing what does he, he he's a young guy i know i think his first fight was around the age of 18 his first mma fight yeah i think it was 17 17 18 which would have been the no holds barred valley valley Judo. Judo. yeah mm-hmm. yeah i mean he competed a lot in in submission grappling tournaments um did, young did he compete just jujitsu a lot before that yes okay yeah whether it was gi or no gi i don't think it mattered for him what was nogi jujitsu like back then? it was just wrestling like submission wrestling yeah it was there were no like you know it was not what it was like today it was essentially grappling without a gi on there's still the goal was being submissions yes for for 
a lot of them. They're usually ran by the same people that hosted the same tournaments. So the, the format was usually the same, same scoring system, things like that. Were most of the people there jujitsu people or did you have a lot of Sambo? Uh, or, no, we had a lot of wrestlers um, or not wrestlers. Let me take that back. A lot of Luta Livre guys, a lot of the, the scrappers, you know? Yeah, which we talked about them before. Right. So at 18, he become he has his first Valley Tudo fight. Right. It was in 53. So he goes against a capoeira guy. Yep. Beats him, I believe. And we've talked a little bit about capoeira before. Right. There was, there was somewhat of a rivalry also. Well, there were, I mean, when there's not a defined top dog, you know, and, and I'm talking about the styles of fighting, then everybody claims that they're the top dog, which was part of the mission that Carlos and my grandfather set out to destroy was to prove the point that Brazilian Schutz was the most superior single form of combat <coughs> in the world and, and they did they, they proved that but they had to fight the boxers the little lever guys the the capoeira guys they all they all came out of the woodwork because they all wanted to show that they were tough the biggest rivalry was with the little lever guys 100 percent. okay so his first fight he has he wins mm-hmm. gets by submission um or he gets yeah submission due to strikes yeah from mount yeah and then he never fought again. No, he fought a bunch of times. <laughs> but uh, his fighting, well, he fought some great guys, and I believe he only lost once. So I believe he was seventeen and one or eighteen and one. Um, he uh, his fights weren't the most uh, memorable thing about him, except for one. There was one fight that was very very important, and it was when he fought Father Mar Santana. And why was that one so important? Oh man, like that's a that's a big like there's a big background story to that one. You know, Valdemar, um, I believe Valdemar trained under my grandfather, um, and he at one point in time started challenging my grandfather's ability, and my grandfather being as I will someday do to you, and we will be forced to then sure. Yeah, I believe my grandfather was you know like in his fifties or near fifties. Um, and Valdemar, I think, was like 18 years younger, 15, 18 years younger than him. Um, basically, he was, you know, Valdemar challenged them. Or he, he left. He talked some some crap. My grandfather, you know, didn't back down. Valdemar challenged my grandfather. My grandfather didn't back down again. And that's the longest recorded fight in history is my grandfather and Valdemar Santana. How long was that? three hours and 45 minutes oh no rounds and um they they went out of all came in without a gi my grandfather came in with a gi um the fight went to like i said to the end at three hours and 45 minutes um i don't know that it was officially called one way or another they both had to be sent to the hospital they were dehydrated um i don't know the official ruling i should know that um and uh how old did you say your grandpa was at that time? I think, I think my grandfather was, I want to say, like, late 40s, early 50s. That is taxing for the most in-shape person in the world, let alone... Stand straight up. Don't move for three hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> and, and when you're 25. Right. Now, now be your late 40s and have to yeah, grapple. So. With a guy who's much younger in his prime, who has been training with you pretty much the entire time. You know, and uh, so um, 
Carlos then sent Carlson, who's roughly the same age as Valdemar at the time. I believe uh, he might have been like 20, 23. 23. Yeah, I think Valdemar was closer to 30. Um, I think, again, my dates might be a little bit off. but um, And then there was a big, like, this is like Carlson is taking, you know, taking the putting the Gracie family back on the map and they fought to a draw. Well, and the one thing that I saw that was funny was Carlos, his father said that he would give 300,000 guys. Yes. If Valdemar could just like survive. Right. Which is like $75,000. Oh my God. But back in the fifties, that was a lot of money. Well, and were they at a, like, had they did they have enough of a like a uh, like an empire or not oh, an empire? No. But like a lot, a lot of the money that was put into those fights that that were put up for challenges on on the Grace family, they could make the money happen if they needed to. But the reality is, most of the time they didn't. It wasn't didn't, liquid, <laughs> right? They didn't they didn't think about it because it didn't matter. Like the Gracie was going to go in there and die, or he was going to win, and and uh, they fought to a draw. And then they rematched, I think, a month or two later. And uh, and and that's when Carlson beat him in, like, in two rounds or something like that. Now, I think I also read that there were, maybe the rematch, like 40,000 people there. Yeah, it was, in the, it was in one of the bigger stadiums in Rio. Like, soccer stadiums. That's massive for... Yeah. I mean, nowadays, I mean, we have some stadiums here where you get 70, 80,000. I don't know what the max is, but but for just a, a fight in the 50s to get 40,000 people, yeah. he had to be a, like a superstar at the time to, to get well, that many the, people. the Gracie family was a superstar at the time, and Valdemar Santana had been fighting for the Gracie family for a long time, and now he was fighting against it. So there's like that... The, I had all the makings of a dramatic. Yeah, fight. you know what I mean, like the the you know the uh, prodigal son coming back and you know taken back from the family and you know what I mean like it's all the elements that you see in WWE just real. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and uh, and I believe the second time they fought, uh, Carlson beat him. I think in two rounds, maybe the beginning of the third round, definitely beat him. Like there was no like controversy or anything like that. So he has a very successful uh, career in Valley Tudo. Yes. And then what what is his jujitsu career look like after after he's done with that? So he was um, you know, he was very successful. He was a champion for most of his jujitsu career, you know, often winning. Was he doing the jujitsu tournaments simultaneously with all the MMA? I, I, I believe so. Um, I believe there was obviously a shift from time to time as priorities rose. But um, yeah, he not only ever stopped competing um, until like mid to late 60s, early 70s is when he stopped competing in jiu-jitsu. We should also mention like what what kind of, what size, what, what kind of guy are we dealing with here physically? Um, I believe he fought around, uh, what, 70 kilo? That's 150. He was bigger 150 than that, pounds. right? Not at the time he was competing. Oh, okay. Have you ever seen pictures of him? Yeah, he seemed like young, younger pictures of him. I always thought he looked like he was decent size. He was guy. stocky. He was short. He wasn't as tall as people may think he was. Okay. Um, but um, anyways, he um, he was five eleven. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then one six. Yeah, about one hundred and sixty pounds. Yeah. So not a super heavy guy. Yeah, but um, his biggest, like the biggest thing about Carlson, uh, I think the biggest piece to his legacy was the team, and 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 not not necessarily what Carlson Gracie team is today. <laughs> but what it was when he was leading them you know he he revolted um against his dad against my grandfather you know my grandfather and his and his dad um carlos they 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 didn't teach jiu-jitsu for everyone it was a very like high class you know they weren't teaching it to everyone like you had to pay you know a lot of the classes most of the classes were small groups or one-on-one privates it was this very like secretive thing you know it's not if secretive is the right word but very elite very elite thing like you had to commit and be somebody and be something to be part of this thing and and carlson believed that um you know why not why not teach multiple people at once why not teach group classes why not um you know why not teach it to everyone well not everyone can afford to not everyone should learn right because there's a lot of thugs my, again both my grandfather and carlos didn't think big guys should learn jujitsu they don't need to you know they, that that was not a thing for them you know um so Carlson didn't care and he opened his school and he taught everyone it didn't matter who you were it was a group class was he training under Carlos or your grandpa technically under Carlos but <coughs> like like we've talked before my grandfather was pretty much like the hands-on general he was the guy that made the team work and 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 a lot of Carl Carlson's hands-on teaching uh, were my grandfather's and a lot of the the mental side of the fighting the strategy the the long-term planning was carlos um but anyways carlson um you know basically teaches to everyone if they couldn't afford to train they could train for free you know as long as they stepped up in tournaments as long as they were loyal as long as they represented the team as best they could like it was very like Don Corleone-esque, you know, you're, you're in, now you're in for life. And, and, and so you have a lot of guys who are so loyal because they're saying no one else would give me a chance. Right. He, he's letting me do this. Right. So. He fed me, he would pay for my tournament entries. He, if I needed a place to stay, he would find a place for me to stay. He, he like helped me. I was, came from a poor or troubled. I mean, like did a lot of that stuff, mm-hmm. but he demanded a lot of them too. And, and, um, his original team was very tough. It was probably the toughest team, arguably, probably ever. Um, what time? In, around in what time was that? Probably 80s. So did he make that split then? Early 80s? Um, I think 70s. I think like when he stopped competing and he became a coach, I think that's when the split happened. The changing views happened. And... Um, how how big was that split? Were they on speaking terms? Was it like a yeah? You know the family like any 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 arguments that happen in a family, 
they can get ugly like just like any family but at the end of the day it's still family we still talk to each other you know what i mean like we may not be happy about it but but we'll talk i don't think that there was ever a situation where he was not on speaking terms He was a very loyal guy at the end of the day the loyalty he demanded from his students he demanded of himself towards the family you know so differences issues points of view none of that at the end of the day mattered you know so what is this group that he has then in the eighties that you're saying? So they're they're like the crazy. they're like the original X Men. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, they were they were these like rough and tough kind of guys. You know, these were the guys that had nothing to lose. They came from poor. Some, not all of them, but most of them came from poor backgrounds, from bad neighborhoods, from you know just rough life. And and he was this father figure, this mentor that was giving them this outlet this safe environment that would protect them treat them like family and and and, and they bought into it you know you saw guys like marili bushtamanchi like he godly bored you you know de la hiva um a lot of great guys came out of that benedictus and so on um and and they dominated for like the 80s i mean they they were uh, as a team uh, pretty much an unstoppable force you know, as individual fighters, they would lose, you know, here and there. They wouldn't always medal. But as an overall team, like, there was not a single slacker in their competitive team. What were characteristics and trademarks from the guys coming f- from his uh, from they the were just, training? They were just rough, man. Like, a lot of pressure passing, which is a huge Carlson Gracie thing. Pressure passing. Um, top writing, so they like to be on top. They weren't a lot of bottom guys except for De La Hiva. Yeah, I was going to say, he yeah. was probably a standout then. Because he was the smallest guy on the team. <laughs> you know, he was probably always in the bottom when he grappled those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, majority of them were on top, were top writers. A lot of them wanted to fight MMA. A lot of them did fight MMA. Um, they, they were just tough competitors. Like, you, they might have not been again as a team they may not have been the most technical team but they were definitely like a war like even if you knew you could beat them it was going to be it was going to be a battle you know it was going to be like a major issue and what i've seen and read it sounds like they were like you said very tough and then also like uh carlson's style was a like understand your basics get that stuff down it was like did he focus on fundamentals yeah I mean, it wasn't necessarily super flashy no no it didn't need to be he just needed to work right at the end of the day Carlson worried more about the outcome than how you got there and it didn't need to look good it didn't need to be fancy it didn't need to be this incredible beautiful jiu-jitsu it just needed to get you to win mm-hmm. however it took whatever it took and when you when that's the mentality you can make people very tough very quick and if they're loyal and committed you like to that to that extreme they'll make it work you know to make guys like that what do you have to do as far as a coach on a day-to-day basis what what were his methods in the gym what have you heard I couldn't do that here <laughs> yeah Oh, there's no way that would ever work here. Um, no, he would pit them against each other. They He would come in, and if you heard that somebody was saying that they did better against their training partner, their teammate, you know, then he would stop class and you and you go. I want to see who's best right now. 
and you know they all they all wanted that approval that that Carlson like saw that they were that they were the best or that they're the the better one of the team that they wanted to make him so proud that it, even if it meant beating the shit out of each other in class that's okay it was understood mm-hmm. that my my brother my teammate might beat the shit out of me because he's looking for the same approval that I am like the the approval and the love from Carlson was so desired that it didn't matter that they were pitted against each other it didn't matter that they were they would beat each other up every day, all day. There was never an easy role. There was never an easy class because if you had an off day and you lost, it might mean losing, you know, that attention from him. So you see the results then are, you talk about this just insanely talented and tough team. <clears throat> Yet if I said, cool, so that's the best way to train people. I would say no. Right. Yeah, 100%. Is that if you're looking just at success, then what do you are? What's your argument against that style? What's well, not? We're not talking about success, right? We're talking about training methods. So um, maybe not to this extreme, because mm-hmm. I think he's a little more educated. Donaher does a little bit of the same thing, right? So DDS, biggest DDS has ever gotten. Six people. It was the biggest team they've ever had. Dan and her death squad. Yeah. And people are like, wow, yeah, that's six guys. They're incredible. Kind of. You have Gordon Ryan, Gary Tonin, and Nikki Ryan, which are Hanzo bred and born, right? They started training at a Hanzo affiliate or at Hanzo schools themselves. They picked up training under Donaher, who took them under their wing and made them three. Right, but you look at all the other ones. They're transfers, like Craig Jones. He's a transfer. You know what I mean? Like he came, he was got a black belt somewhere else, and then he moved over to train with Donaher. And people can still say, "Well, yeah, that's six guys, though. How many of your guys have made it that big?" It's not about how many I've made it that big. It's percentages, right? We're talking about success in training percentages. Hanzo's got over a thousand students. If out of a thousand students, you're producing six you see the percentages are very low, right? Where if you take another team that may have 200 people, if they have two, the percentages are way different there. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So um, it's not about, it's not the best training method just because you had good results. You look at consistency. The most consistent team over time has been um, Alliance. In 10 years, I think they've won like nine years in a row of the world tournament as a team. Now you can say, well, they had the most, the biggest team. Well, sure, but consistently they're placing, you know. Um, yes, they have a bigger pool, but they also have more people winning too. So percentages are different, right? Um, I don't think pitting students against one another is the way to go. I don't think. You know, um, personally, I don't think that that's the right way to go. Plus, the culture in America is so different. Imagine if you came to class and I said, Andrew, I heard you're talking shit about Claude. Yeah. And then I just, I walk in there, I just beat his ass. Well, no. What would happen is in the middle of class, I would stop class and I would make everybody else watch. And then you guys are going to go at it. And whoever loses is going to get an ass chewing and whoever wins will get my attention. 
And so you'll have some people who love and thrive in that, but a ton of people who just go, this is like a weird... I don't like this. Like cult that I don't want to be a part of. Right. But in Brazil, remember, the relationship between student and teacher is far different in America, right? In Brazil, it's not about providing a service. In Brazil, it's it's about the, the... the respect that you give to your mentor for teaching you something, right? Where in America, at the end of the day, most Americans see this as a service. I pay somebody to instruct me. They work for me. And, And that alone means that that training mentality would never work in America. And it hasn't worked in America. Yeah, he still did have success with schools in like he, so he went to Chicago, started a school there, right? Yes. And his son took that over when he's passing. Okay. I don't know if I want to get too far ahead. So we are talking. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's jump back before we move to that point. Mm-hmm. He has these guys in the eighties. Right. Then as the nineties come, do he you, moved, he moved to America and do you start to see him transition having a lot of su- successful guys in jujitsu, but now the MMA is getting big. He starts to have guys that are, transitioning and using the MMA was a problem. Um, but I think the, the personally, I think the bigger problem, the biggest problem was the astronomical growth, you know, in his small school in Rio, he would have daily interaction with his team that would thrive on his relationship with them. Right. Those tough guys that we talked about, as it gets bigger, and now you instead of having 20 or 30 guys in your school, you have a few thousand over several affiliations. You can't do that. You lose that ability. Control in that one-on-one. Right. Yeah. So that's where that's it goes back to like the whole training mentality like you can teach a system to a to a thousand people and it'll work, right? But if you're just teaching based on you know, prove it to me how much you love me, like type of thing. Like that only goes so far if you're not around. Right. So I think as it grew, he would have to put generals in place so that they could lead in his place, you know, and a lot of the first generation Carlson Gracie guys, the Liborios, the, the Pinedadas, the De La Hivas, they would then become, you know, they would manage their own schools under him. And there's a few guys that are getting into MMA, you know, like Vitor Belfort and so on. So now that's another distraction. It's another difficulty. Um, and, and it leads to, it eventually led to a split. So, all right, so there's a split and <clears throat> the people who leave there, some of them then form American Top Team. BTT. BTT. Yeah. And then American Top Team came out as a result of that later. So first it's... I think that, I think it would be hard-pressed to who came first. I think it, it almost happened like symbiotically, you know? Were um, the same guys who starting the one starting the other or... Yeah, the, I, think, I think the idea started together. <clears throat> the execution might have been carried separately. And even those guys then start teams that are successful. So you still see his influence as a coach being so... But those teams are mostly successful, at least early on. It's changing. But at least early on, those teams are most successful in MMA, which it is a culture that thrives on 
the tough guy mentality, not always on the longevity aspect, right? Mm. Um, but it transitioned, you know. I mean, tough guys don't don't pay, you know what I mean? Like, and I think at the end of the day, they all transition into more of the jujitsu side of things and so on. So the Carlson Gracie schools nowadays, what what's the state? What do you see with with those? I mean, they're they're enormous. They're yeah, they're. I mean, it's a huge association. Yeah. Um, it's under Carlson Gracie Jr. now. Mm-hmm. Um, he took it over. They're all under him. He's in Chicago. Um, I think um, I think they're still some of the most loyal schools you will find. Generally speaking, all the students tend to be loyal to the the idea of Carlson Gracie, even if they've never met him. You know, um, he's passed, so he's no longer with us. But um, very loyal team, hardworking. You know, they still stick by a lot of the fundamentals he created, which was, you know, be as tough as you can be, you know, get good, stand up for the team, show results, you know, very like, f- very like hard family that way. Um, and, and it shows, I mean, he's like I said, it's still a very good team. Have you trained at many Carlson Gracie schools? I, I have um, over the years, of course. Um, I never committed to training at a specific school, but I've visited plenty of schools. I've done seminars at a few schools um, that are Carlson Gracie senior, uh, junior now, but Carlson Gracie senior at the time. Junior just came to school nearby us recently. Yeah, just... yeah. yeah, he came in, did a seminar. Um, I couldn't make it, but he did a seminar, promoted a few people. Yeah. So as we look back at the legacy of... Carlson Gracie Sr. What should people remember? What was his biggest influence on jujitsu? On the world? I would say loyalty. Um, He was so focused. And here's why I'm going to say this, because maybe you don't know this. Before he died, he was afraid that when he did die, there would be charlatans saying that they're Carlson Gracie's senior black belts because there's so many of them. There's so many schools that would be hard to to track that person down. He made a point to write a list of all the people he gave a black belt to before he died. And he said, those are the only guys <laughs> that are a true Carlson Gracie senior black belt. And and he, he died. Like that list is still floats around. If you search it, you'll still find it. It's got like hundreds of names on there. But those are the only ones. Do you see anyone who ever tries to uh, claim it? Oh, it happens all the time. Maybe not necessarily under him because of the list but there's there's that that stuff still happens today so all right well that's a good episode on a very influential person in jujitsu everyone if you have not done a whole lot of research on carlson gracie look him up you can there are tons of articles uh videos on youtube very interesting guy and like and it is crazy as you look through the list of all the students he had that all the majors. I mean, they're, they're legends in the sport now. Yeah. You know? to, yeah. To be someone who could, if nothing else, even if he didn't have the long successful or like the successful Valley Tudo career and jujitsu career, just to produce, have that, <laughs> that, yeah, that, that lineage underneath you or the, or the people who came from you is, is pretty. And they all still love him. Even the ones that split off from him, they all still revere, you know, his 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 person all right we're going to switch over to the listener mailbag listener mailbag listener mailbag 
a little different than last time, but okay. Yeah, listen, we're an eclectic podcast. We so, have very different. So tastes. you didn't zip, you didn't unzip and then unlock. The <laughs> it's because before the show, I opened it up, so it was already oh, open. Oh, gotcha. So which order did you do it in? What's that? Which order did you do it in? Last time, I went. Uh, you zip. Yeah. Wait. No, you did the lock first and then you zipped it. Zip. Yeah, that's what it was. Because the locks protected the, or the zipper protected the locks from like moisture and other things. Mm. All right. Our question today is from a Instagram listener and they asked what your opinion is on combat jujitsu. Oh, okay. And I, I, I don't know a ton about it other than I know it's started by like 10th planet, Eddie Bravo, right? No. No. Mm-mm. Popularized. Popularized, maybe. Okay. Not started. Not started. All right. So yeah, tell me, tell us about this then. So the idea of I'm gonna put on air quotations just so nobody can see it. Combat jujitsu is um, you grapple and you open open and strikes, and and the idea, the original idea came from my family way back in the day, where that was a transitional period to grappling with striking because remember the original point of jujitsu wasn't this grappling sport but more so learning to protect yourself and so you would transition you do stages you train with the gi take the gi off then you grapple without the gi with with some open hand slaps and then you do you know no gi with gloves and you kind of work your way up you know well and it also just sounds like a um a way to a sustainable way to do jujitsu without taking a ton of damage, but right. still, still being aware of right. Right. Those training wheels. Yeah. You know, and, and that lost a lot of its um, glamour when the Gracies moved to America, because the idea was to not just show the efficacy of jujitsu, but to show the uniqueness of jujitsu that we don't need to strike a lot in order to be successful. So the, the, the grappling became the focus, the selling point, right? The, the uniqueness of the grappling. Um, and then Eddie Bravo brought it back maybe about a year and a half, two years ago, maybe two and a half now. Um, and he created like combat jujitsu, which was the idea of can't strike on your feet, once both people are on the ground or once somebody's down, you can strike. And then he's been tweaking the rules to make more fun for spectators. And and what Combat Juice has done here in America is it's bridged the gap of the MMA fans and the jiu-jitsu fans. It kind of pulls them together. It gives them another event where they can... The MMA fans can become a little bit more educated about the jujitsu, which you don't maybe always get to see in, in, a, in MMA. And the jujitsu guys got to appreciate the jujitsu that would work under duress a little bit more. It allows fighters to step down, you know, as a, as a MMA fighter gets older and outside of his fighting prime, you know, mid thirties, um, for MMA they start to win out of their prime for MMA, they can step down into something that's not as violent, that's not as hard on their body, that's not as physically taxing, and still have fun, still make money, still, you know, be somebody, and then they can eventually transition to even just grappling. Now, there's clearly a benefit for the person, from a defensive perspective, where you're learning how, or you're 
keeping your jujitsu sharp against striking. And Absolutely. so there's a clear transfer to like a street situation. Now, from the offensive position, it also would, you're learning how to grapple, but then look for openings and striking. Does that change? That's kind of outside of jujitsu. Does that change what it is then? Um, it's not necessarily outside of jujitsu. What what happens is it creates this very, very um, teetering, unbalanced um, offensive behavior. Meaning what? If we've never grappled with striking, you've never hit anybody while you're grappling with them. So you may think you may hit them and get a successful submission and you may think, man, this is the way to go. And you start looking for ways to open somebody up by striking, which sure there's merit there. But the other side of the equation is you don't really know the appropriate time to strike and it may cause you to lose your position. Oh, that doesn't happen. Yes, it does. How many people do you see get on top mount the UFC, start punching and get rolled over? Mm-hmm. You see, so there is learning to be done, learning to, to throw strikes without losing balance, without losing position, without losing control. And there's also the, um, the you have to be careful to not rely solely on strikes to open up submissions because if somebody defends well enough, you may neglect your ability to set them up for submission because you are always counting on the buffer that the striking gave you. Okay. So it's both good and bad. How popular has it become? I think I think in a short time it's been around. I think it's become very popular. Again, it's on UFC Fight Pass, which targets a ton of people. It's... You know, MMA fans may see it. Jesus people may see it. It brings into crowds that are similar but not alike, and and allows them to to have a common ground. All right. Yeah, it it is fun to watch. Yeah, I, it, I, I enjoyed. Yeah, it's exciting, and you see things that they do there that wouldn't work on a regular jiu-jitsu match. Mm. Just like you see things there that wouldn't work on a MMA match. You know, so. I'm working on starting water jujitsu. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because you can add an element of drowning. Oh. So if you can get someone past under a certain level, that level change, once you both are under that, which is you're in both water, yeah. you both are choking. So essentially, you're trying to choke someone, they're trying to choke you, mm-hmm. and the the world is trying to choke both of you. So there's this time limit. Gotcha. Are you going to do something like, like Cirque du Soleil O, where like it's a raised aquarium so everybody can see in as people are fighting under the water? I think that would be the most theatrical way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. What, how was... How would your jujitsu change? Would you try to? Would you try to? It wouldn't change. But when you go to when you go to the ground, you have to have a quick mission. There's a limited time on what's going on. It wouldn't change. No. No. You can't have. A, you can't under, play a long game. You're both under the water. Right, and so there's this panic. You'd have to wear goggles, or you'd have to be. People would resist less because there is a time limit involved. Do you think guys would start focusing on just being able to hold their breath longer? Oh, absolutely. That would become a huge part of training. Yeah. Dude, let's do this. Let's create underwater jujitsu. Maybe we can make a sequel and create fire jujitsu where we throw like hot, hot coal on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be, that'll be once people start to get bored with and, water jujitsu. And jiu-jitsu. we do just no gi in that portion. <laughs> 
this this will prepare water jujitsu. I think is is the is the next step, and then maybe you have fire, fire, fire jujitsu. Okay, cool. And then we'll have to get with Elon Musk on this space jujitsu. Sure. Space jujitsu wouldn't change anything a ton. Yeah. No. Uh, it would. It would change this way. You wouldn't have the ground to uh, sweep. To sweep. That's the only thing it would change, but nothing else. Well, but think of all the times that you use the ground as a stop or as your push. Your it's a force that there, is opposing. There, there is no. There is no direction in jujitsu. Well, there's gravity, so there's. But gravity is not a direction. But it affects the way things are moving. Sure. Imagine if I sure. no no sure. But at the end of the day, an armbar is an armbar. Upside down, side up, sideways. It's still an armbar. Yeah, but as I as I as I let's say am I'm in mount and I flip or over. You're in guard. Or in guard. It's the same position. Jiu-jitsu in space starts to become very philosophical, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> let's say you get to half guard. Who's on top? Right. And it's the same position, top or bottom, it does not matter. But you can't use you can't like there's nothing to push off of or only only your partner. Yes. Yes. That would be the only element that changes. But at the end of the day, techniques would all be applied the same way or virtually the same way. Okay. Water jujitsu and space jujitsu. I'm gonna work on these concepts no, and I like how you just threw fire jujitsu out the window. Thanks. I, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but no, that, no, it's, you work, that's it. I'm done. That's your baby. <laughs> you work on that because the logistics are gonna be very tough. Not you really. Have, just throw some hot coal on the ground, have people grapple over it. Yeah, if but they, they move fast enough, they won't burn. But here's the thing, you're gonna get taps from people who will just hold someone's back, basically like wrestling. Hold that's it their down problems. To the and they'll go, ah, Although in water jujitsu, you're going to have just someone drown. who drowns. Yeah. And then in space jujitsu, we're going to have to figure out a way for a uh, You should be, able to take the ma- should be able to take the mask off. <laughs> and they just their head just explodes because of lack of pressure in space. Okay, we'll work on this. And if you guys have <laughs> ideas on like how you think we should develop this, please send them in. Uh, oh, and also if you do have videos you want us to to watch and critique, you can send those in also. But mainly just do the water jujitsu and space <laughs> jujitsu. And if you want to make Crowler feel good, you can send in some ideas for uh-huh. fire jujitsu. All right, uh, everyone, thank you for listening. <laughs> have a great day and a great week. <laughs>